Welcome to Journal Spotting. Trying to keep up with the medical literature, but apparently Journal Spotting HQ has a team of actual beavers who chew and digest all the articles and present them in a light-hearted podcast. So why bother? Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles along with specialist interviews, guidelines and more. We scour the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back, Journal Junkies, to another awesome roundup of the latest and greatest medical literature. Tonight, or today, depends when you're listening, I am just joined by my esteemed colleague, Dr. Jonathan Hudson, and we are going to take you through what you need to know about what's been going on. Already rolling my eyes at the use of Journal Junkies in the ah, first sentence. First sentence, I knew. Just got to get it in there. They'll love it. The Journal Junkies will love it. Uh, yeah, it's good to be here, Barney. Thanks for thanks for having me back. I don't know why I'm saying that, <laughs> but I think that's what you want to say. Um, yeah, very excited. We've got a really uh, quite eclectic mix of articles this month. Yeah, there are a few articles in here that are, that are pretty interesting, and you might even find yourself forwarding on to you know family and friends. I think there's some there's some in here for everybody. I've got a great one for you, John. I, I, yeah, a little spoiler alert. It's gonna it's gonna blow your knock your knock your teeth out. I don't know. I'm not sure what the phrase is, but it's gonna do something like that. You'll see what I mean by that. Um, how you been, John? You've been all right. Uh, any anything interesting recently? What you been up to? No, no, not a huge amount. Um, enjoying coming out of lockdown. I did a did a locum shift the other day. Haven't done one for a while. On a Sunday, a lazy Sunday in lazy South Sunday. London, which was oh, good. Very nice. Uh, it's still. I've. I mean, I'm going to sound like a ranter here, but why do we get Domino's <laughs> on a Sunday for lunch in a mess? It's like the most ineffective intervention to get the best out of your team on a Isn't Sunday. It? It's you literally a... spend the next two hours, like a whole team spends the next two hours drinking water. And then two hours after that, looking for unblocked toilets, trying to <laughs> wee, which in a DGH in South London, good luck finding an unblocked toilet. Seriously. Well, that's, that's pretty good. And then it actually ends up being five o'clock and that's the end of the day usually. So that's nice. Uh, yeah, uh, sure. my... At my hospital, they've stopped using Domino's, which is brilliant. And actually, we have got some really tasty pizza. <laughs> um, people are going to be like looking back to figure out what institution this is because it's the second time I'm going to bring this up. But they've had to, uh, this was about a month ago, um, again, when I was on call. I was on call this weekend and that weekend. I can't believe you've made the link here between pizza and what you're about to say, I think. But no, no, it was. We had pizza in the mess, left there. And one of my colleagues walked in and there was Splinter. Do you know Splinter? No. Of the turtles, <laughs> the rat from turtles, eating oh, the God. pizza, probably just getting some pizza for his friends. Um, and it's a bloody great rat. So that, that closed down the mess for uh, the next week as they had to exterminate that. So, <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, I can't dear. remember. Have you revealed what institution you work at? I'm, I'm sure I have at some point. Yeah. And I won't if not, people could just look you up, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you open that with a compliment that they've changed the, the pizza provider. The <laughs> yeah. got rid of the excellent choice of pizza but unfortunately the rats love it too so yeah yeah in. they turns out they really like sourdough <laughs> right um shall we crack on and tell the listeners what they're going to be hearing about today yeah definitely barney so for this month's roundup we're going to be covering anti-epileptics we're going to talk about why you should be recommending mushrooms for patients uh, maybe to prevent cancer and maybe for mental health as well We've got some COVID updates for you. Another slightly random article about coffee, but I think you're going to enjoy it. And yeah, we're going to talk about physician burnout as well, which I think is a really important topic. So yeah, lots to unpack. I think we should crack on. Sounds good. Sounds good. John, I think you're going to start us off, aren't you? Talking about uh, why we should all walk around with blood pressures of 90 or something. So uh, yeah. 
<laughs> maybe yeah. not with all that salt and all that pizza maybe you know but still anyway you crack on yeah that's not going to be the take-home message yeah so uh treatment of hypertension i mean the antihypertensive seems so ubiquitous on the drug chart that i worry sometimes we don't think very much about when to start treatment and why we are starting in the first place a slightly too tight blood pressure cuff combined with an overzealous ward cover sh over the weekend and your patient can quickly find themselves with a dry cough and feeling a bit dizzy so this is a massive meta-analysis published in The Lancet by the rather grand-sounding Blood Pressure Lowering Treatment Trialist Collaboration. Good name. They, <laughs> no, it really taught me about some of the remaining controversies and nuances of treating hypertension. All right. So uh, what, is, what is controversial about treating hypertension, John? As you say, it's kind of drilled into every medic and every doctor's mind that hypertension is bad. Well, so from what I can gather, firstly, at what blood pressure should you actually start treatment? Uh, the US and European guidelines say 130. NICE guidelines say systolic of 135 while ambulating and 140 in the clinic. And there is quite a lot of debate about whether these values are the right values. The second question is the benefit to patients that don't have established cardiovascular disease. Does treatment have the same effect as for patients with pre-existing cardiovascular disease? So those are kind of the two issues that this meta-analysis is going to address took 48 really big hypertension trials and combined about 350,000 participants with a follow-up of four years. The headline finding was that a five millimeters of mercury reduction in systolic blood pressure lowered the risk of major cardiovascular events by about 10%. And that's regardless of if patients had established cardiovascular disease. So antihypertensive treatment has the same effect in reducing cardiac events when taken for primary or secondary prevention. You interested by? Yeah, yeah. No, you've got you've got my attention. You've okay. got my attention, John. I suppose the the thing with this is as well is this idea of you know a lot of cardiovascular disease is silent, isn't it? So yeah, it's, it's difficult kind of distinguishing them. But yeah, anyway, please carry on. The next finding was that this ten percent reduction was seen even at normal or high normal blood pressure values. So patients derived a benefit in prevention of cardiovascular events regardless of their starting blood pressure, even if they had a normal blood pressure, which some did in this meta analysis. So I think this is pretty practice changing, but it took me a bit of time for me to get my head around it. This study is saying that the benefit from antihypertensive treatment is the same regardless of your starting blood pressure or your history of cardiovascular disease. So on this basis, blood pressure medication should be viewed as an effective tool for preventing cardiovascular disease when an individual's cardiovascular risk is elevated rather than to treat the blood pressure itself. So we can think of antihypertensive treatment as just like a standard cardiovascular risk reducer. It's not about getting the blood pressure down as far as possible. It's about this kind of antihypertensive treatment giving this sort of stock reduction in cardiovascular risk. And given the benefits at normal or lower blood pressures, which was seen in this meta-analysis, having minimum blood pressure thresholds to start treatment doesn't really make any sense. It should be more about cardiovascular risk. I'm a bit worried. Have I, have I lost you there? Does that make sense? No, it does make sense. The concern, of course, is that if somebody has a blood pressure of 100 systolic or 110, if they've got quite low blood pressure already and you start treating them and yes, you're reducing the cardiovascular risk, but you're probably increasing the risk of, of side effects and things. Two important points on that. One is that the meta-analysis definitely highlights the importance of like a patient-centered discussion and you know these are not blanket values at all. And then I think the second point is that the article is pretty light on hypertensive treatment side effects. You know, it doesn't really talk about that. Sure. It's also pretty light on lifestyle interventions as a sort yeah. of first line as well. So like <laughs> lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it, 
what I really like about it is it really says like the important thing is the, is cardiovascular risk in this assessment. Yeah. And, that, and that should be, you know, something that's at the center of the consultation. That's brilliant. Cheers, George. I think that's really interesting. Thanks very much for that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to take us away from cardiovascular stuff and go to something which I guess I'm not, not actually that comfortable with. And that's why I find it quite interesting. And what I'm going to talk about is a, is a study which was published in The Lancet. This is the SANAD, SANAD. Two study looking at the effectiveness and cost effectiveness of valparate versus levetiracetam. Mm. Am I saying it right? Yeah, I would have said it the same. Levetiracetam. Oh, levetiracetam. Ah, you know what? Still, still to this day, I've been a doctor for God knows how long and I still can't say it right. Anyway, um, (laughs) I I think this is an important study. Um, One, because it actually came to a a bit of a surprise to me that, um, and it just shows my ignorance about neurology, but Valparate is first line for generalized epilepsy and unclassifiable epilepsy. Now, for some reason, Valparate seems like an old drug, and I probably actually wasn't aware of that, which is you know pretty bad. The evidence for this is actually fairly scarce, but the mm. SANAD, the SANAD-1 trial, confirmed this when it compared lamotrigine and topiramate to Valparate, and then Valparate came out superior. Since this study, though, levetiracetam, or Kepra, for those like me who just still can't say it, has been increasingly used but the evidence for this is also fairly scarce. John, have you, have you got some experience of this about sort of starting epilepsy medications and what's been used in your, in your trust and things? No, not at all, but I'm all ears. <laughs> <laughs> I know Valpray, uh, you know, avoid in women of childbearing age. That's my kind of... Good. You know. I mean, and that's really key, which is kind of why it's been in most women actually now. It's just sort of kind of given a no-no because the chances, it's teratogenicity um, and the chances of you know, problems related to pregnancy are, are huge are really really big so that's why it's totally avoided and i tend to see more and more people just started on kepra if i'm honest which is um which again which is why i thought this was good this sanad 2 study investigated the clinical and cost effectiveness of levetiracetam against valparate in new generalized or unclassifiable epilepsy so it was an open label non-inferiority multi-center randomized control trial it got 520 patients of which three quarters had generalized epilepsy they were split into either the Valparate group or the Kepra group and followed up for a minimum of two years in the UK. All in all, a pretty robust study apart from the being open label. Levetiracetam did not meet their criteria for non-inferiority in remission of seizures at 12 and 24 months. Can you say it without ca- the double negative? Exactly, <laughs> yeah. In case that double negative confuses you because it confuses me, essentially Valparate was superior. Adverse events were similar at about 40% in both groups. So around 40% of people had some sort of adverse events, okay? These drugs are not, not nothing, mm. okay? They do affect patients. Finally, levetiracetam was found to be not cost-effective compared to with Valparate in the NHS. In fact, levetiracetam was associated with fewer quality-adjusted life years and overall higher costs amongst all patient subgroups. What does this mean? Well, the data shows that... It's expensive that, oh, and you can't pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly john yeah. i mean like overall that doesn't work as well yeah it doesn't work as well for epileptics it's it's worse for politicians budgets for the nhs it's hard to, it's easy to spell easy to say um and we should be using this as first line apart from in women who who where there is any chance that they might get pregnant nice by that's great and it sounds like you've learned quite a lot from that trial and good to be reminded as to why valparate is first line so now i'm going to move us on to a slightly more random topic so if you thought the mushroom was going to be resigned to its place as a tired veggie burger in a Weatherspoons, you would be very much wrong. 
the fungus is having a bit of a renaissance in the medical field as well. And that renaissance is definitely not just limited to, you know, your weird housemate who spent lockdown claiming that microdosing psilocybin is going to turn him into Elon Musk. But there's a separate podcast about that. Um, so we've got a few mushroom articles to serve that cropped up this month. So firstly, everyone's favorite risotto sidekick are actually packed full of bioactive compounds, and in particular, an antioxidant called ergothionine. I'm not sure if I've pronounced that correctly, but it sounds right. The potential anti-cancer properties of these fungi have been studied in lots of observational trials that are brought together in this heavy-hitting meta-analysis published in Advances in Nutrition this month. Quick pause here before I give you the results, Barney. Favorite type of mushroom? Porcini mushrooms. We've uh, started getting the dry packets and putting them on our food. Delicious. I like it. Lovely. Good to know. Uh, They have quite a lot of antioxidant, actually. The ones that have the most antioxidant are the ones that are from the more kind of Asian variety, shiitake, Oyster, okay. those ones. So anyway, this meta-analysis, I've done a bit of reading. This meta-analysis combined 17 studies with data from about 20,000 patients investigating a link between mushroom consumption and cancer. Pooling together the effects showed that higher mushroom consumption, and that's around 18 grams per day, was linked to a 44% reduction in the risk of all cancers. There was evidence that there is a dose dependent response associated between mushroom consumption and the risk, total risk of cancer. But when site-specific cancers were examined, a significant association with, with mushroom consumption was only observed with breast cancer, not other cancers. But this could be due to maybe a lower number of studies uh, looking at these other sites. So breast cancer has quite a lot of evidence for it. So there's a pretty good evidence base for a link between a reduced risk of breast cancer and the consumption of mushrooms or high consumption of mushrooms. I just want to make sure it's clear that although, you know, uh, the effect size seems large, 44% reduction, um, this meta-analysis is from lots of studies that are largely based on case control studies. And that puts them at high risk of selection bias, recall bias. And also remember these studies, they're all going to be quite different and they've all done their own adjustment for confounders. So there's a lot of heterogeneity across the studies and the final analysis is maybe a little bit messy. We probably should be a bit wary of the results. Nonetheless, you know, I think it does add quite nicely to an growing awareness of the role of diet in preventing chronic diseases and cancers. And, you know, I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that advising patients at particularly high risk of cancers and, for example, breast cancer, to increase their mushroom intake. And, you know, who knows, that could have a benefit. I think, I think it is fascinating, John. Thanks for that. Um, there's always issues with nutrition data, isn't it? Yeah. It's just, it's, you can you could probably you know, do, do many meta-analyses of all this and people come mm. up with different results depending on how they do it. But I think equally, there is actually more and more evidence about how nutrition, the things we're eating, the phytochemicals, all these sorts of things mm. are, are having a massive impact on our health. And there is certainly a, a change, probably for the better, in that direction. So eating healthily, yeah unsurprisingly that means you you are healthier no it's good <laughs> thanks for that nutrition advice <laughs> well but, but it's, it's almost as simple as that see people so yeah, it's yeah. crazy like if you eat vegetables and eat a whole variety of vegetables and don't eat too much processed food that actually they live longer and have yeah things. it's so simple but so and so obvious but at the same time it's, it's more complicated so yeah no, i think it's really interesting you've got a i think you've got another mushroom article it looks like i do i do john um i wanted to share my my mushroom article with you because you're such a fun guy nice that's nice. it's not nice it's you must be chuffed i didn't use up that pun in my i was chuffed i was chuffed yeah. I, was a bit, I was a little bit worried i thought you might just use it so um there's not much room for two puns 
Oh my gosh. It took me a while. Literally, did you hear that pause? That was a genuine pause where it was working my brain. That's very good. It's very good. Anyway, good. Uh, I'm going to delve into a slightly less medical topic, but on the same subject as mushrooms. Some of our listeners may be more familiar with the colloquial name for these mushrooms, which are shrooms. <laughs> don't worry. I'm not going to regale you with hedonistic stories of, mm, I don't know, vibrant hippie aliens or mobile furballs with little tongues. Instead, I'm going to go straight to the science part. That's a relief. <laughs> Magic mushrooms often contain psilocybin. And this is a potent hallucinogenic, which acts as a serotonin antagonist. While this has often been sort of said to be useful in depressive disorders, the evidence has largely been anecdotal so far. Nobody believed the hippies, basically. But still, what mm. we need is some good evidence. So published in the New England Journal of Medicine, this is a small RCT of 59 patients with severe depressive disorder, not currently on medication. They were either given high-dose psilocybin with a placebo, or a very low dose psilocybin with escitalopram. Patients were monitored for six weeks and regularly tested for multiple psychological factors with interviews and questionnaires and that sort of thing. Overall, there was no significant difference between the group in that they both had improved depressive scores. That said, the benefit seems a little bigger with the psilocybin group and psilocybin won in a number of different secondary outcomes, including improved anxiety, well-being, and remission, although the study was not powered for these endpoints. Yeah, I, I saw this article, and I thought it was interesting. I have uh, read a book called How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, which is a kind of sort of modern history of um, hallucinogenics and why they were sort of made illegal in the sort of 1960s and 70s counterculture and why there's not been much research on them up until now. And this article has come out of Professor Nutt's lab, who you'll remember was fired from the drug advisory council by the government because he said that mdma was less harmful than alcohol don't you, don't you remember? anyways he's now yeah, started up this yeah. lab at imperial that are doing a lot of research on um, the medical effects of hallucinogenics so i think this is the first of probably a wave of things that we're going to start seeing about this fascinating and yeah. in the popular culture as you mentioned more and more you hear sort of celebrities all that doing this micro dosing and, and swearing by it. it's not evidence but it's coming out there we're going to hear more about it and we'll wait for more evidence i guess so next time you see high-dose shrooms scrawled on the drug chart, just roll with it, man. Maybe the patient might just thank you. <laughs> or the little alien which is running around beside him. I think we're a very long way off ever seeing yeah. it on a drug chart, but <laughs> who knows. Great. So that was our little mushroom roundup. What have we got next? I'm going to take us on to trying to get a good night's sleep, which you know is pretty hard to actually prescribe to patients. And... There is a lot of evidence now that it's an important modifiable risk factor, you know, a good night's sleep. Or, well, in your case, Barney, a non-modifiable risk factor, given that you've got a newborn baby. Um, Also, it does always seem a bit contrived when you suggest to your patient on the ward that a good night's sleep will help reduce their risk of X, only for them to experience a ward environment that is only second to the glass remain stage for worse places to try and get a good night's sleep. Nonetheless, sleep's important, particularly for dementia risk as is nicely highlighted by this study published in Nature Communications this month. So John, apart from my one-person case study of Maggie Thatcher, who used to sleep for about four hours a night and uh, ended up getting dementia, I I mean, isn't it already known that there's a a bit of a link between poor sleep and dementia, or am I wrong there? Yeah, uh, you're right. There There is definitely evidence, but it does turn out, as these authors highlight, that most of the data is from studies with, firstly, under 10 years of follow up 
And it mostly looks at people from the point of being over the age of 65. So we don't really have any data on how your sleep in your middle age, say in your 50s or your 60s, has an impact on your risk of dementia. And this is a large cohort study published in Nature Communications that spanned 30 years of follow-up. And they looked at patients in their middle age. So the cohort study is from Whitehall 2, which um, some of the listeners might know about. It's a big study of civil servants that were all recruited in the 1980s. And they have been basically followed up ever since. Professor Chris Whitty, soon to be Sir Chris Whitty, I'm sure, uh, has actually worked on the Whitehall 2 study in the past. I digress. Uh, so they collected sleep duration questionnaires every five years, asking the question, how many hours sleep do you have on an average weeknight? To which you could reply with minus five, six, seven, eight, more than nine, or none, I'm being bullied by the Home Secretary. Love to get a bit of politics in there, don't you, John? Oh, my God. What did it find? So... Yeah, it's interesting. So the ages 50 and 60, there was a 22% and 37% higher risk of dementia associated with sleep duration of six hours or less compared with seven hours, which they deemed to normal sleep. This was independent of sociodemographic, behavioral, cardiometabolic, and, and mental health factors, which is quite an interesting one. There are some limitations to the study. So it relied on linked electronic health records to gather the diagnoses of dementia. That's not ideal as there might be misclassified cases of dementia and there is no data on what kind of dementia these patients had or participants had. Also, there may be some residual confounders that they can't account for, like having to cover for your boss's illegally funded flat refurbishment. But on the whole, this seems like good evidence that short sleep duration in midlife increases the risk of dementia. Why is this practice changing maybe? Well, I think it's good evidence that it's well worth discussing sleep hygiene with patients. And in particular, I think those that might be at higher risk of developing dementia for other reasons, I think it is definitely worth having a conversation about sleep hygiene. Yep. And if they've got sleep problems, just send them over to your helpful respiratory physician and we will look for sleep apnea and deal with all the other <laughs> multitude of sleep issues. Because actually, yeah, we know that it's a, poor sleep is associated with so many things. and it's really Don't try and crowbar a respiratory problem into this. <laughs> Stop it. This is not There's a respiratory paper. There is a this is about dementia. This is an interesting... Prospective cohort study. It's a famous study. Do not crowbar OSA into this. We don't need it. I wonder if they had CPAP if uh, they wouldn't have had got dementia. That's what I wondered. You're unbelievable. Next article. All right, John, you want me to stay off the respiratory? That's fine. But I've also got another dementia article for you, which might actually beat your uh, 22 and 37% (laughs) if it's a competition, right? to start with, I'm just going to come out and ask it. John, how many teeth do you have? Uh, well, I've had my wisdom teeth removed, so I actually don't, I don't know the number. Oh, you've, had your, you've had two removed. We're going to have to talk about that. You know, this is, anyway, this, this is a study from Japan. These authors did a cross-sectional study which was published online in PLOS One. It looked at 4 million people with periodontitis, which is essentially gum disease, and 600,000 with just missing teeth, and also looked at the prevalence of Alzheimer's in these people. You guessed it, the fewer teeth you have, the higher the chance you have dementia, Alzheimer's dementia. The odds ratios can get pretty high. So sifting through the data, if you have periodontitis and only 10 to 19 teeth, just so you know, I think the usual is 32, including the Winston teeth. When I try okay. counting mine, I've got 28. But if you've only got 10 to 19 teeth, the odds ratio of having Alzheimer's was 1.1. This rose to 1.3 if you only have 1 to 9 teeth. 
suggesting a 34% increased risk of having the Alzheimer's if you have less than a third of your allocated teeth. For all those with 28 missing teeth, then the odds ratio of having Alzheimer's dementia is 1.8. Now, before you say it, John, I am pretty sure there are absolutely no confounding factors here <laughs> which were not adjusted for in the study at all, apart from age and sex. Um, and How is this published? <laughs> oh, hey, look, this is fascinating. This is important. Look, you're just saying that because you've had two teeth removed and now you're scared. Unfortunately, we don't have all that, the key data about, you know, what happens if you have fake teeth, otherwise known as dentures, listeners. Um, does this ameliorate the risk? I think certainly another RCT needs to be done. In the meantime, if you lose your teeth, try and stick them back in and brush your teeth. Otherwise, I'm afraid your risk of dementia is going to skyrocket. John, is I, that a... Uh, Barney, I, I'm really not sure about this paper. <laughs> Fine. Isn't it, isn't it just that it's a sign of ageing? Oh, is it a sign of ageing? There's so many things. It's a bit of a ridiculous study. What I RCT are you wanting them to do? Pull out people's teeth? Yeah, see I if think you get so. dementia. Yeah, I think that's probably <laughs> what we need to do. I think we just need to get All the funding. Right. Just get the funding and the uh, ethical approval and we'll be on our way. Moving swiftly onwards. Yeah, yeah okay, let's, yeah. Let's, let's, get to some, let's get to some more relevant stuff. <laughs> All right, that was a bit irrelevantly, irrelevantly irrelevant. Um, okay, back to uh, a bit of COVID zone. Happy with that? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. That seems still relevant. Welcome back to a brief COVID zone, listeners. With India surging in numbers, in the UK, we are finally seeing a bit of a lull. But in that lull, all of us, all of the doctors, will be seeing more and more people with long COVID and its numerous manifestations. Long COVID seems to affect people in multiple different ways. Interestingly, respiratory symptoms seem to be present actually in the minority, with the majority experiencing significant symptoms such as fatigue, aches, and mental health-related problems. This PMJ article investigated long COVID, otherwise known as post-COVID syndrome, in a retrospective cohort study which looked at 48,000 patients who were admitted to hospital with COVID and survived to discharge. Using their healthcare records, they were then matched against a large pool of UK patients for personal and clinical characteristics. Next, they scrutinised for outcomes, including all-cause mortality, hospital readmissions, and the diagnosis of a number of different conditions with an average follow-up of about 140 days. Unsurprisingly, having post-COVID syndrome was bad. Mm. Surprisingly, it's really, really bad. Overall, about 30% of those discharged were readmitted in the next 140 days. Compared to controls, this is about four times higher. About 12% of those who survived to discharge died over this time period. This is about eight times higher than controls. On top of this, they were three times more likely to develop diabetes or cardiovascular disease, twice as likely to get CKD, and just under twice as likely to have chronic liver disease. Somewhat unsurprisingly, the outcomes above were all significantly worse if the patient was aged over 70 or from a BME background. Of course, it's impossible to retrospectively match patients perfectly using healthcare records, but there is a very clear and worrying correlation here. Yeah, and it's also worrying that, you know, we think we're past the peak of infections, but the health burden is going to be felt for a very long time in society. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. 30% coming back to hospital within 140 days and 12% dying. That's crazy, isn't it? After they've managed to survive being in hospital. Yeah, I think, I think it's crazy. So, yeah, so listeners, you know, take care of your patients who have been discharged with COVID. Simply said, you know, be aware there are a number of sequelae which can occur and be aware that after discharge, about one in 10 
will be dead in six months. Bleak. Very bleak. Bleak, isn't it? Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. No, that's okay. All right, John, do you want to perk us up and tell us some caffeine-related facts? Yeah, okay. Little little pick-me-up. Bonnie, are you one of those regs that's constantly buying coffee? I feel like you probably are. <laughs> Guys, want um, coffee? Anyone want a coffee? I, yes and no. I'm also a cheapskate. I was a cheapskate. For my last three jobs, I've either bought or found a dusty cafetiere, and so I bring ground coffee in and yes i like to provide people coffee but i'm too cheap to buy it from costa most of the time <laughs> yeah fair that's a good way yeah so i guess when you send your team off with your order if you ever do <laughs> do people ever wonder what determines who's ordered what coffee i mean why has the consultant asked for decaf why does the f1 want a coconut frappuccino and how come the sho has asked for four extra shots you know <laughs> And it's, it's always it's always good banter isn't it actually at the coffee shop and uh there's always the uh, the classic eye rolling for the the coconut frappuccino bellino with um, <laughs> peanut butter in it stirred in a, in a certain way but uh, everyone's already always jealous of it yeah they're always jealous of it absolutely <laughs> so all of this that i'm talking about could actually be determined by your genetics and i'm going to explain why i'm going to talk us through a quite a cool study that uses a research technique that i've um been reading about a bit called mendelian randomization and they try to unpick quite an important question about coffee in epidemiological studies and cardiovascular health so drinking that cup of coffee in the morning um we know will increase your blood pressure your heart rate and could give you some palpitations which are all cardiovascular symptoms these are short term effects and in fact we've chatted on here before how high coffee consumption based on larger observational studies is thought to be good for things like your blood pressure and your cardiovascular health but what if this was actually wrong what if this was all reverse causality meaning that people with cardiovascular disease due to the effects of coffee and the symptoms that it gives them actually self-regulate and reduce their coffee consumption the authors of a study in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition try to cleverly unpick this question of reverse causality. They used 390,000 UK biobank individuals and used this genetic technique, Mendelian randomization, to try and figure out if there was a reverse causality. They took genetic variants that are known to be linked to higher systolic blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure, and resting heart rate at baseline. And they split the cohort into two groups, whether you have the variants or whether you don't have the variants. Now, because genes are passed down randomly from our parents, this is basically a form of randomization, like, like a randomized control trial. You have one group that have the variants for higher blood pressure and higher heart rates, and you have the other group which don't have the variants. Oh, interestingly, okay. Yeah, and because we're looking at genetics, there's no way you can actually get reverse causality because coffee consumption cannot change your genes and you don't get any effect from confounders. Barney, you kind of with me so far? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, it's nice. great, okay. So what they showed was that people with hypertension, angina, arrhythmias, or people that report or self-report poor health, they all tended to drink less coffee compared to others. And they all tended to choose decaffeinated drinks, and they were more likely to be non-coffee drinkers. So this is evidence that basically people with cardiovascular disease do just self-regulate and drink less coffee, probably because it gives them symptoms. They then showed that the genetic variants for high blood pressure all lead to lower coffee consumption. And those with higher resting heart rate were more likely to choose decaffeinated coffee. So this study provides evidence that genes that give you particular cardiovascular symptoms, high blood pressure or high heart rate, might actually be driving your coffee intake. 
This suggests quite strongly that observational studies looking at coffee intake are probably prone to influences by reverse causation. And we need to be a bit more cautious when interpreting the health benefits from these studies. That's great. Yes. I mean, I think actually that's going to make you maybe think about different things in the same sort of way. And so idea of reverse causality. Yeah. Like yeah. The, um, so Mendelian randomization is really cool and there's, uh, they're using it on a lot of things. Um, the more we can do genome-wide association studies, the more genetic variants we have that are associated with certain exposures and certain outcomes, um, the more you can do these quite cool kind of pseudo-randomized kind of studies. So yeah, watch this space. Great, great. Okay, I am going to move on to more sort of lifestyle type things. Uh, just just quickly, again, this is my only bit of respiratory, I think, for this whole article. So <laughs> I'm going to talk about weight gain after smoking cessation okay so john let's check obesity is bad for your health right i think so yeah good and smoking is bad for it too right definitely <laughs> so they say so they say these yeah. doctors that's what they <laughs> keep poking on about okay but what if you stop smoking and put on lots of weight is that bad uh i would say that is not yeah uh, i mean bad is a, a difficult adjective to use here, but, um, <laughs> it's a little bit subjective isn't it yeah that's what the alternative is <laughs> it, that is probably better than smoking and losing weight i would say yeah good okay. that, is that a helpful answer that is a helpful answer and actually that's exactly what the study is looking at okay because uh, things like weight gain is often an excuse for patients why they don't want to quit smoking because actually yeah they find they do put on weight and so how much of a risk is that when they're putting on weight this Australian cohort study published in JAMA followed up over 17,000 Australians for up to eight years who either never smoked, continued to smoke, or had quit. They were specifically looking at outcomes including weight, BMI, all-cause mortality, and development of a number of medical conditions in all the patients, particularly looking at the smokers and ex-smokers. Unsurprisingly, quitting smoking led to a significant increase in weight. On average, this was about three kilograms or 0.82 as far as the BMI. However, many patients gained over 10 kilograms. However, across all variables and changes in weight, even if it was more than 10 kilograms increase, the all-cause mortality was significantly less in patients who quit smoking compared to, compared to those who continued. Now, this is perhaps not particularly surprising, but it's very reassuring and is quite good data which we can tell our patients. Importantly, and perhaps even better news, and one which you may or not have been expecting, the increase in weight after quitting was not associated with an increased risk of de developing cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, cancer, or COPD. I wonder if that suggests that you're sort of reverting back to a baseline rather than increasing yeah. your risk over yeah. and above what it was before. Exactly. I think that's a good way of putting it. Something along those lines. Yeah, exactly. So, in conclusion, smoking is bad. And Gaining weight after quitting obviously isn't great, but it does not seem to be associated with an increased risk of developing nasty diseases and is almost certainly better than not quitting in the first place. So tell your patients that. Yeah, that's really helpful. Did the study look at whether you start vaping, um, put on weight, but also get a personal trainer and become a vegetarian? Did they do that combo? <laughs> is, this, is, this, is this your story, John? <laughs> no, 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 no. no, Sorry, no, no. I'm I'm detracting from quite a good point. So. No, but, I, but you're right. I mean, actually, life is complicated. But oh, they only, only vape at the weekend and only mental. Um, and, mm. you know, 
So uh, it, life is not as complicated as smoking or not now, is it? Yeah, but great study. Yeah, I think that's really helpful for advising patients about quitting so. smoking. I think it's nice. I'm going to put a little bit of downer at the end of the episode and talk about burnout, which is a topic that after the last year, we need to be talking about more than ever, I think. Um, that's burnout in healthcare professionals. Not only is it bad for clinicians, um, there are also quite clear correlations that there's an increase in errors and poor outcomes for patients when you have burnt out doctors. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work going on in this, isn't there? And actually more and more evidence that sleep deprived, stressed doctors just uh, are more likely to make mistakes and mm. on top of quitting and poor mental health, et cetera. So great job. Yeah. yeah, looking forward to what you hearing what you say about it. Yeah, I was glad to see this important article in JAMA looking at factors associated with burnout, including clinician sex, work culture, and the use of electronic health records. So the study did a survey using a validated burnout scale of uh, 1,300 clinicians and simultaneously analyzed their electronic health record usage metrics. So actually at the outset, the studies was actually more lo- wanting to look at whether there was an association between using more electronic health records and burnout. That makes sense. Just out of interest, is that the amount of clinician sex they're having or the gender, John? <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> the gender. <gasps> the gender. Thank you. Yeah, Thank yeah, you, John. Yeah, Thanks yeah. for clarifying. That's good. But yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure there were many people listening that needed that clarifying. It was conducted in a single center in North Carolina, USA. And that might impact our ability to generalize the results. But I think the results are quite interesting. So just to get the first result out of the way on the electronic health record usage, this wasn't really associated with burnout and isn't really interesting bit about the paper. So use of EHR, um, as they call it in the paper, didn't really lead to any significant risk in burnout. Okay. The concerning parts were that burnout was significantly more prevalent among women across all clinician types, and that's 52% versus 47.6%. Um, they put burnout on a scale of 0 to 100 based on the thing, and it was basically anyone over 50 entered a criteria of having sort of moderate burnout from there, so anyone with a score of 50. And female clinicians had an increased likelihood of burnout with an odds ratio of 1.3. And then they did a sort of multivariable model, and there were some things that protected against burnout, such as work-life balance, teamwork, and diversity. Um, And when they put everything together, they found that these work culture domains actually accounted for 17% of the variance in the model. So it was the predominant cause of burnout were workplace or work culture domains. Um, This is compared to only 1.3% of the variance explained by the electronic health record. Okay, that's interesting. I I guess that's not hugely surprising. I think uh, hospitals would love to say, oh, it's just the computer system, which is why doctors are burning out. But actually, it's far more complicated than that. And it sounds like this, this data is saying that you know, the main cause is related to the work culture rather than you know, the EHR, um, which is, yeah, perhaps not that surprising, but much more difficult to tackle. Yeah, I think you've summed it up well. So my takeaways from the study that Let's Remember was done pre-COVID are that we all need to be aware of burnout and the things that protect us from it, such as work-life balance and, you know, engendering good teamwork. You know, these things do matter. They make a difference to whether you have burnt out doctors that make mistakes. And the most important thing, I think, is that female doctors are more likely to suffer from it. And the evidence is overwhelming that we need interventions in our work environments that address this gender imbalance pretty urgently. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, um, it's interesting looking at burnout. It's a really complicated topic of, of cause and and effect. And, you know, 
personalities and resilience this sort of side of things compared to you know which almost puts the blame on the doctors sometimes um, um compared to the culture which is all of the doctors compared to the the management it's uh it's a really complex and fascinating area which needs more work done to it um to get, try to get yeah. some answers and solutions yeah I, I do think though the more that we can get studies like this done and i know america are probably a bit further ahead in terms of recognizing burnout as a problem and having more of a culture that talks about it yeah um but the more studies like this can come out the more you know we can just have it put in front of us that these things really matter like you know getting shos their rotor only two weeks before they start a job you know stuff like that is just you know these things do matter they lead to burnout and they lead to clinicians making mistakes and the more we can hammer home that point maybe the better our sort of working environment can be and I think an, an openness, you're right. In America, they have, there's far more open about talking about these things. Um, and the, kind of the British, the stereotypical British thing is where you suffer in silence. And, and it, I think it is a real thing. And I think actually we should be encouraged and almost not necessarily forced, but um, pushed to talk about it, to make it normal. This is, is my idea about it. Well, and lots of people's ideas. So great. Uh, worth flagging up. I suppose now is a good time. There is a, uh, there are some really brilliant well-being services i mean there's, there's loads and more and more and more all the time um one i suppose that we'd recommend is uh, offered by the bma if you head over to their website they've got uh, a whole load of, load of options and uh, links and i think now more than ever we need to be aware that of our mental health and the toll that the job can take on us so yeah, yeah. thanks for highlighting and, and although and those resources like you know highly recommend them but also just recognizing that we all have a role to play in helping each other and creating those work cultures and work environments you know yeah it's sometimes it's a bit frustrating when they're like oh don't worry there's some well-being that we've put on for you it's like yeah but what about somewhere to sleep at night i don't need a yoga class damn it <laughs> Anyway. You've got a free cup of tea between the hours of one and three o'clock <laughs> if you get a coupon and if you wait in a queue. And yeah, they yeah. will sit down. So yeah, no, there we go. Brilliant. John, thank you so much. It's been awesome. It's been it's nice. Highs and lows. Yeah, I mean highs and lows. Um just the two of us this week. We'll probably have more people next week if you know. But uh but it's been great. It's been a bit like old times. So John, do you wanna tell us what are your key take-home points from what we've chatted about today? Uh, although I made a sort of unnecessary joke at the end of it, I actually thought your article about um, advice about giving patients in terms of uh, putting on weight after they quit smoking, um, I thought was quite nice. And yeah, so so that for me was the take home. And then the other thing, you know, really having those really bad outcomes for patients that have had COVID after discharge, you know, what was it, 30% being readmitted one in 10 maybe dying within the next six months, you know, those are pretty big numbers um, and scary. And yeah, I think that was good to have those highlighted in a paper. Yeah. How about you? What, what, what did you enjoy? We did a lot, there was a lot of interesting stuff. I learned more about mushrooms than I thought I would from an episode. And <laughs> I think it's brilliant. I think, yeah, especially that the reduced risk of breast cancer thing. I mean, you know, we can't be 100% sure, but I think it's really interesting information. And John, I really liked your first article as well about the blood pressure lowering and that actually, yes, it looks like just lowering the blood pressure a, a reasonable amount, but we shouldn't be aiming it's based on what their blood pressure is almost. It should be based on what their cardiovascular risk factors are overall, which I think is a great lesson to learn. So fantastic. Great. All right. Well, it's been good fun, Barney. And um, yeah, we've got a few episodes coming out in the future. We've got an interesting interview um with one of the top hiv consultants here in london that's coming out soon so keep an eye out for that get in touch if you want to hear something or if there's something that you're enjoying or you're not enjoying 
Check out our website, journalspotting.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Enjoy. Cheers, guys. All the best. Bye. You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your hosts, Dr. Barnaby Hirons and Dr. Jonathan Hudson. Information on today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at journalspotting, Facebook or Instagram. Special thanks goes to our logo lady, Natalia, graphics man, Costa, and promotion stars, Isabel and Abby. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com, or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are our opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests, and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.